You're listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast. This week, we bring you four messages Chuck Colson presented at MBI Founders Week between 1981 and 2003. Then we'll close the week with his message at the Washington, D.C. Leadership Conference 1988. Chuck Colson was a Christian leader who founded Prison Fellowship and Breakpoint after serving as special counsel to President Richard Nixon from 1969 to 1973. Now, here is Chuck Colson on Today in the Word Radio. I can speak to you tonight as serious believers, leaders, most of you. Those of you who are studying as students are going to be leaders in the church, and uh, many of you come here, and your elders and deacons and hold various up. Many pastors, I'm sure, come to Moody Founders Week and spend this time in the Word and listening to people speak and great music and worship. And I hope you take seriously the charge which, uh, which God has given you. The Apostle Paul, when he was speaking to the leaders of the church at Ephesus, an emotional speech to them, an emotional talk, because he was leaving them, going to Jerusalem, knew that he was going to end up in prison, I think realized what was going to happen to him. And he said, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he, Jesus, bought with his own blood. What a sacred trust it is. What a sacred trust it is for any of us to go out in the world and say we're Christians. And to realize that people are going to look at us and are going to decide their eternal destiny may be decided by what they see in you. A number of years ago, I was in Jakarta, Indonesia. I had flown all night from India, changed planes in Singapore, and was flying into Jakarta for all-day meetings. It was hot and humid in the airport. They had told us that they would have someone meet us at the plane and take us through customs, and we wouldn't have to go through all the immigration and all the things that you do processing in. And uh, they weren't there. And so we're standing in this line. We're late. The plane was a little bit late. I had to speak all day, going to the prisons, going to meet with government officials. A very packed day. And I was feeling very stressed. I was traveling with six or seven businessmen who were seeing the prison work we do around the world, 95 countries. And uh, feeling stressed, I nonetheless was talking with the men with me. and We were passing the time. Didn't give it much of a thought. A year later, I received a letter from a senior partner of Kudair Brothers in Singapore, Chinese. He said he grew up in a Confucianist home. And he said that four years earlier, he had sent his children, though he had no interest in Christianity, had sent his children to a Christian church so that they could learn morality. And he said he went one day to pick them up, and he saw in the sanctuary of the church a missionary from Australia giving a message. And he was holding up my book, Born Again, which is now 26, 25 years old, and had a picture profile of me, two profiles, one before and one after and the title of the book was Born Again. He was holding that up to the congregation. And this gentleman wrote me that he said, I looked at the back of that, stood in the back of that church, and I saw your picture. And he said, I didn't think of it again until I was standing in an immigration line in Jakarta. And I was tired and frustrated because I had a big day, and I was angry that I had to wait in line. And he said, I looked over at you, and I saw that face that was on the book. And he said, I watched you for the next half hour. And while I was frustrated and angry, you seemed so joyous and at peace. But he said, I came back, I borrowed the book from the church library, I read it, my wife and I and all of our kids have been baptized, we're now believers in Christ, and we're active in our church. Thank you for standing in that line. 
Simple point, folks, we're never off duty. Take seriously the responsibility, not only to let our good works be seen by men and our light shine in such a way they see that, but the light shine within us so that people see something different about us. It's an awesome thing to go out to the world and say, I'm going to speak for God. Nothing has scared me more in my life. And I never fail to pray like Jeremiah prayed, God, touch my lips that I might not say something, that I might be prevented from saying something that isn't true. Because it's such an awesome responsibility to be a shepherd of the flock for which Jesus shed his blood. When I went into the Marine Corps, I was commissioned in the middle of the Korean War, and I thought I was going off to Korea. The war was ended before I got there, but I was training morning, noon, and night. I was a lieutenant. I knew if I went into combat, I'd have the lives of 50 men in my hands. I learned everything you could learn out of the Marine Corps manual. I went over that obstacle course every single day with great determination. I could take my rifle apart and put it back together blindfolded in 20 seconds because I knew I had 50 people's lives in my hands. But brothers and sisters, we have the lives of our congregations and our friends and our neighborhoods in our hands, not just that they be killed, their flesh be killed, but their eternal destiny. Take that as a sacred trust. Take that seriously. Solemn responsibility. That we live in the world and that people see us in such a way that they're drawn to Christ. These are tremendously challenging times. But these are times of great opportunity. And never has it been more important for the people of God, that is the church, not this beautiful, wonderful building, but the people of God is the church. Never has it been more urgent that the church take seriously its responsibilities to be the people of God. In 1989 in Washington, a scholar by the name of Francis Fukuyama wrote a book which was the toast of the town. People were talking about it. He was on every talk show with all the talking heads. His name, Fukuyama, was, was uh, on all the reviews because of his book entitled The End of History. And his theory was that all through the 20th century there had been a great ideological struggle between communism and fascism and all of the isms of the 20th century and Western liberal democracy and Western liberal democracy had won and we would reach the end of wars and evil and suffering and it'd be a great extended period of peace. All utopians who deny the sinfulness of man believe that. And all utopian dreams lay on the ash heap of history. That particular one lays on the smoldering ash heap of ground zero at the rubble of the Twin Towers in New York. That one awful moment on 9-11 changed everything for this country, changed everything for the world, changed everything for the church of Jesus Christ in our times. Nothing in my lifetime has turned the world upside down and stood it on its head the way that event has. The prophet of the late 20th century was not Francis Fukuyama, but a feisty professor from the Queens, New York, who teaches at Harvard by the name of Samuel Huntington, who wrote a book, The Clash of Civilizations. And Huntington's thesis was that in the 21st century, we would find ourselves once again, as we have been over the centuries, 
locked in a struggle with three great religious systems representing the historic, cultural, and religious divides which have always separated the world. Western Christianity, Judeo-Christian tradition, Eastern Bloc religions of various forms, and then the scattered nations of Islam, which he saw being the militant force of the 21st century. He predicted precisely what is happening today. You gave me the great privilege of being here a few years ago to talk to you about my perspective on what was happening in American culture. And I can remember talking here in this very church about the great culture war going on in America, the great struggle between secular naturalism, the idea that eight billion years ago, uh, light rays refracted down at a certain angle, popped off at, a, at an angle, and two uh, amino acids popped off. They happened to both be left-handed. They came together. A hundred of them came together, formed one protein cell. It happened three or four times, so you had three or four protein cells. Then they began to multiply, and here, after eight billion years, we set grown-up germs. <laughs> That's secular naturalism, but it influences everything we think about in our culture, every single issue. At the root is a difference between secular naturalism and biblical theism, the belief that the God who is not silent, the God who is, spoke us into being. That's the great division within our culture. And I thought I'd spend the rest of my life fighting the battles that result from that and advancing Christian truth in a culture which is growing increasingly hostile. But now I discover Christianity is in a battle on two fronts. Yes, within our own culture, but also against the militant forces of Islam. You're hearing a lot of things said these days by people who are saying, oh, God is a God of love, and Islam is the same belief system as we Christians have, and all roads lead to heaven, and this is a time when we want the nation to pull together, and we do desperately want the nation to pull together, and it's a wonderful thing people are finding a kind of unity we haven't had since World War II, but don't be taken in by this civil religion ecumenism, a mushy kind of, oh, God is just a wonderful benign figure and we all worship the same thing. It's not true. It's not true and it's terribly important that we as Christians understand the difference because we have been locked in many areas in a struggle with Islam for conversions. Just look at the prisons. The shoe bomber, Richard Reed, converted to Islam in a British prison by a radical imam. And all through the prisons we find this because <clears throat> the Islamic faith preys upon people by telling them they're disaffected, they've been oppressed, they've been discarded in society, and come along with us and join us and you'll be part of the brotherhood. And it's had an enormous appeal. I've been in 600 prisons in 40 countries. We work today in 1,200 prisons in America and in 95 countries of the world. And everywhere we're up against the militant forces of Islam. And Christians need to be prepared to defend against it because these are two entirely different systems of understanding life. Christians believe in the God who loved us so much that he died for us. Islam is a religion in which God sends people out to die for him. It's entirely different. Islam does not believe in the fall of man. They believe everybody has been born into Islam, which is perfect peace, 
and only corrupted because they're taken away from Islamic structures. Christians believe in, in a free society where your faith can be practiced. Islam believes in theocracy, a church state. Christianity advances by evangelism, where we tell people about the love of God. Islam advances by jihad. The only way in which you can be sure you're going to be saved in the Islamic faith is if you die in a jihad, bringing infidels to death. Then you can be promised salvation. Otherwise, there is no salvation. Islamic kids are going around on campuses today all over America handing out little tracts which say Christians believe in three gods because of the Trinity. And they have little tracts which show three separate gods. And that's what Christians believe in. And how many of us are prepared to defend the doctrine of the Trinity? We need to understand, of course it is so difficult sometimes to comprehend how God could be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit at the same time. But defend that we must because it is blasphemy to Allah to believe in the Trinity. And yet without the Trinity, we have no salvation because it is God who came in the person of Christ to redeem us for our sins. It's the love of God, not the will of God. Now these are absolutely antithetical systems and we need to understand that difference so that we can evangelize well and so that we can defend the truth and particularly evangelizing, which we will be doing all across the world in increasing intensity with Islamic militants. But even though it's tough now because there's a different kind of a battle, it's a time of great opportunity. Because for the first time that I can remember, people are asking the ultimate questions. They're asking the right questions. We went through a period in the 90s which was a binge because all that mattered was fat 401ks. Everybody thought peace and prosperity was going to last forever. And all of a sudden, we've gotten serious, and we're asking about families and faith. Church attendance is up, and although it has declined a little bit since that big peak right after 9-11, still more people are coming, and they're asking the right questions in church. Bible sales are up 50%. Samuel Johnson, the great British writer, once penned these memorable lines. He said, the hangman's noose marvelously concentrates the mind. And 9-11, for all of its horrors, has forced people to ask some fundamental questions. And the great issue that we face in this room is whether we are prepared to answer those questions in a pleasing way, in a loving way, and reach out, particularly now, reach out to Muslims. Many must be disillusioned with what they see that their own faith has produced. Although George Barna was in to visit with me a couple of weeks ago and told me some staggering statistics. The number of people since 9-11 and since President Bush has been talking, and I rejoice that he has so pointedly about evil, the reality of evil, and you would think that the postmodern age which says there is no good and there is no evil, everything's a matter of one's opinion, and preference, you would think that they would be shattered in that belief. But the number of people who believe in the reality of evil and the reality of Satan 
has declined in Barna's poll since 9-11. Go figure. Worse than that, conversions have been increasing faster among Muslims than among Christians. It's because we have drawn this fuzzy kind of picture of a big, vague, benign God. And people aren't seeing clearly the distinctives of the gospel. Never be afraid to point out the distinctives of the gospel. Never. I was in India a number of years ago. And I was, when I landed in Bombay, I was told that we were going directly to a luncheon uh, held by the Christian businessman of Bombay. Now, the Christian church in India is a small percentage, maybe one or two percent of the people, but they're very vibrant and they work very hard. And this businessman's group had put together a lunch of 400 people. And it was marvelous because I gave my testimony about how I had come to Christ and talked about why Christ was the hope and why, it was, why Christ was true. And I talked about the historicity of the resurrection, something that I've written about at some length based on my own experiences in Watergate and uh, my, when I was leaving the White House. And when I finished, there was a fellow came walking up to the head table, big jolly looking guy and big smile, and he said, Mr. Colson, that was a very wonderful talk. And I'm in India, by the way, at a time when they were persecuting missionaries and sending a lot of Christians out of the country. And he comes up to me and he says, that was a wonderful talk. He said, I really enjoyed listening to you. He said, um, I know, of course, and you know that we worship the same God. <laughs> Big smile. He said, I'm the president of the All-Islamic Congress in India. Well, for a moment I thought to myself, what will I do? <clears throat> I'm a guest in this country. They're persecuting missionaries. And... Uh, <laughs> This is such a nice-looking fella. I mean, I don't want to be rude to him. But I realized I had no choice. I said, no, sir, we do not worship the same God. I said, the God I worship wasn't assumed some mysterious way into heaven. The God I worship was bodily resurrected and sits at the right hand of the Father today. He's the living God. And the man looked at me and he said, I know. He said, I'd never heard that to, until today. And his eyes got a little teary. And, and I grabbed immediately some of the Christian businessmen. And I said, take this man off and talk to him. I left Bombay that very evening. I never found out what happened to that man. I should have gone back to that group to find out. But I knew that he'd been touched in his heart. President of the All-Islamic Congress didn't make any difference. He heard about the resurrection. He knew there was a difference. It is not a political offense. It is truth. And we're in the pursuit of truth, and people are seeking truth. And inside every human being is the imago dei, the image of God. They're pursuing truth, but also there's a stubborn, rebellious will, and they're pulling away from God. And that fight goes on inside every human being. And our job is to lead people, and particularly Muslims now, lovingly defend their right to practice their faith. I was so thrilled to read of Christians in this area who came down and defended a mosque that was being attacked by Christians after 9-11. I wish I'd been here. I'd have joined them. We should protect everyone's right of religious freedom, but we shouldn't fail ever to point out the distinctives of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news, always. What must we do? This is a time to tell our neighbors the truth. I wish I had time tonight to give you a 
talk that I give on how you can know the truth because it's so important in this age for us to understand that the people out there really don't understand what we're saying because words mean something entirely different to them. But we've got to lovingly bring the truth to them in words they can understand because the gospel is revealed propositional truth. But also live it out in such a way that they see it in our lives because they can't deny what they see. I love what Francis of Assisi said. Preach the gospel all the time. Use words if necessary. It's how we live. And we've, people have got to see Christ in us in this particular era so urgent. And it's a tremendous hunger for it right now. I gave testimony at the Billy Graham crusade that was in Fresno three or four months ago that you might have seen on television. And I've never seen anything like what happened that night. 60,000 people in the stadium in Fresno, and I gave my testimony. Billy preached a wonderful message. And when he finished and gave his invitation, half the stands emptied out onto the field. Couldn't get anybody else onto the field. People are hungry for truth. That very day I was in the Chowchilla prison, the largest women's prison in the world, 2,500 inmates, and 1,000 came out to the prison yard and sat on the grass. And that day, at the end of that day, when we gave an invitation, 600 cards were filled out, 500 recommitments to Christ, and 100 new decisions to meet the Lord. Because people are hungry right now for that truth, and we're the ones who carry it. Remember that solemn obligation to be shepherds of the church of God, for which Jesus shed his blood. It means that we faithfully present that truth. We also have to have our own doctrine straight. One of the things that appalls me is every time I look at the polls and realize that the church growth movement, which has some good aspects to it in America, has brought an awful lot of people into our churches. And yet the figures are appalling about what we believe as Christians. Absolutely appalling. Gallup found that one quarter of all born-again Christians believe in astrology and 20% in reincarnation. George Barner found that one-third of all people he classifies as born-again Christians, all people who meet the six criteria that would qualify them to be born again, one-third do not believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus or that Jesus was sinless. Wade Clark Roof wrote a book called The Spiritual Marketplace in which he said that one quarter of baby boomer, of born-again baby boomers, one quarter, one out of four, communicate with the dead. It's not just Hillary Clinton talking to Eleanor Roosevelt. It's, <laughs> it's a quarter of the people in our churches. What in the world are we thinking about? We can't give something to the world that we don't have. I mean, the government does that, but we can't. I would say to you, if there's no higher priority than to train disciples who understand the truth and therefore can take it to a generation which knows not truth and explain to them that there is such a thing as ultimate reality truth and you can hang your life on it and it's in Jesus that you find it. Second thing we've got to do is understand that Christianity 
is far more than salvation. Francis Schaeffer, who was one of the great prophets of our time, used to say that to, to, to put Christianity into John 3.16 is like, and <clears throat> say that's the whole story, is like opening up a book in the middle. Because it's about much more. Biblical revelation answers the four great questions that people have asked from the beginning of time. The root of all philosophy, where did we come from? The secularist says from the primordial soup. The Christian says God created us as an answer. He spoke us into being. And the more you look at the the revelation of nature, the more you look at all of the arguments that are being made today for intelligent design, the more you realize it's implausible. It takes much too much faith to think that we arrived here by chance. The second great question is why are we in the mess we're in? Why is there sin and suffering? Why does God allow something like 9-11? And the Christian has a perfect answer. The secularist can't answer it. And the Muslim can't answer it. And none of the people who have utopian ideas about life can answer it either. The Christian knows that God created us good and perfect in his image and gave us a free will, but we turned away from the good when we exercised that free will and we sinned, which brought evil to play in human affairs and therefore the consequences of 9-11 are because of us and the creation of sin. We did it and God is on the cross grieving when he sees it. But he cured it. And answers the third question, is there a way out of that sin and suffering? Yes, there is, because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came and died on the cross for your sins and mine. There's redemption. I studied in the course of writing How Now Should We Live, I studied every single philosophy and every single other religion looking for what their redemption was. There is no redemption apart from the shed blood of Christ. No other philosophy, no other theology offers that answer. And then the big question so many people ask, I think of, of uh, Ernest Hemingway, one of the great writers of, this, of, of the past century. And when he lost his sex drive and when he lost his desire to live and when he couldn't do all the things, the big game hunting and the fishing, he took his nickel-plated shotgun and propped it up on the floor of his hunting lodge up in Idaho and put the barrel in his mouth and blew his brains out having written that he could finally accomplish some purpose in life, and that's determine the means and place of his own death. That's the secular view. If you carry people, force people to the logical conclusion, that's what they believe. But the Christian believes we have a purpose, and that purpose is to restore the culture to the glory and the majesty and righteousness of the God who created it. We have a wonderful purpose in life. A marvelous answer. So yes, God created us. Yes, we introduced sin. Yes, God cured it by his son going to the cross. And yes, we have a purpose, which is to bring God's majesty and righteousness into every single walk of life. You have to see Christianity as a worldview, an understanding of all of life and all of reality, and then live your life in such a way that you make a difference in every single one of those areas. Abraham Kuyper, who lived at the same time Dwight Moody lived, was a Dutch theologian, became prime minister of Holland. When he dedicated Free University in Amsterdam, he said, there's not one square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign, does not cry out, mine. And if Christ cries out mine, 
the church cries out, His. And it means that we're to cultivate and till and to take dominion and to name the animals and to do all those tasks that bring God's glory back to this creation which groans awaiting the return of Christ. That's our job. What does it mean? It means that by word and by deed, we live the faith in each area of life. One of the things I do, and I'm so thrilled to be carried on the Moody Network, is do a five-minute-a-day or four-minute-a-day radio program called Breakpoint. Maybe some of you listen to that. What I try to do is equip Christians to think Christianly about all issues in every area of life and then be able to defend what we believe. And so many times people come to me and they'll say, particularly after I've spoken on these issues and on apologetics, and people come to me and say, oh, it's so wonderful, Chuck Colson, that you can make these great arguments, but uh, I can't do anything like that. Yeah, you can. Cultures are changed not by great leaders being able to make great arguments. Cultures are changed by ordinary people taking the truth of God's revelation, interpreting it in light of the world in which we live, and arguing about it, and lovingly, pleasingly, always being prepared to give a reason for the hope which is within you, but with gentleness and reverence over the backyard fence. Fads start from the top down. Movements start from the bottom up. And I, in investing my life through Breakpoint and through everything else I'm doing, in trying to equip all of you to be ministers of the gospel, to be defenders of the faith. And it's happening. One of the greatest satisfactions I have in, the greatest satisfaction I have in my ministry are seeing other people coming out of prison and being converted and living for Christ. I mean, that's the greatest thrill I get. Got one of them here tonight, Manny Mills. Maybe many of you know him sitting right over there. I just love to see it. Colson Scholar at Wheaton, ex-offender, now running halfway houses. Marvelous. I love to see that. But more but but equally I love to see people take the truth and contend for it. And I get emails today that come from Central Asian republics and from China and from all of our people saying, we got your transcript on this and we're using it. Or mothers tell me that they're taking it with their kids and they're teaching their kids about a particular item of biblical truth and going into the classroom, some of you are nodding your heads. Maybe you do it and you'd thrill me so much to know that. And it does make a difference. There was a woman in the, not in the Bible Belt, but in the rocky, vast Unitarian wasteland of the Northeast who uh, wrote me a letter recently, wrote me a letter recently and she said that she had been at home and her 13-year-old daughter came home from school, Katie, and dropped a piece of paper out of her book bag. And this woman picked it up, and she saw the paper was a test in school. And the question was, how did the uh, universe come into being? And Katie had written Big Bang. And this woman said, I called her over, and I said, you know we don't believe that in our house. Yes, God might have used the Big Bang, of course, but it was God who brought the universe into being, not the Big Bang. And the little girl started to cry. And she said, oh, mommy, I know that, I know that, I know that, but if I answered that question, I'd fail the test in school. Well, this woman had been reading my book, How Now Should We Live?, and she'd been listening, carrying, collecting breakpoints that I've done on evolution and, and those kinds of issues. And so she collected all that material, a book she read on social Darwinism, which was excellent, collected it all under her arms, went right down to the school, went to see the biology teacher, walked in, sat down in her office, and, and started to talk to her. And, the teacher said, oh, no, the religious right has come to our neighborhood. And uh, 
She talked to her for 30 minutes, got nowhere, so she said, fine, let's go down to the principal's office. She walked down the principal. I love this. Somebody's got some gumption to go do something like this. She, yeah, you're right. That's what we should be doing. And she, she walked down to the principal's office, sat down with the principal, a biology teacher following her, and this woman explained it all to the biology teacher and to the principal, rather. And the principal looked at her and said, you really seem to know this stuff. And she said, I've studied it, and I can tell you, evolution is a theory. And it's not got as good evidence as intelligent design. And she walked her through the whole thing. And finally, the principal looked at the biology teacher and said, I think this woman's made a very good point. I'd like you to go back to your class, apologize to the students, tell them that what they've learned at home is just as good as what they're learning in school, and you tell them you're sorry for what you taught them. Then turn... then turned to this woman and said, you seem to know what you're talking about. Would you be willing to serve on the curriculum committee in this school? And today that woman serves on the curriculum committee in a school in Massachusetts, believe it or not. Don't tell me, don't tell me we can't change the world. God's given you a good mind. You're supposed to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And do that. Think Christianly about issues and equip yourself and go change your neighborhood. Go light a candle in your own backyard and you can make a difference. And secondly, we have to live it out. It's so thrilling for me to have been called to be part of a ministry that is taking the gospel into the bowels of our society and seeing men and women who have been totally written off transformed by the love of God, by God's grace, and then be witnesses. Most of you know that five years ago, uh, then-Governor George Bush invited us in Texas to start a prison, to run a prison. We actually run one. We run one in Texas. We've been doing it for five years. We run one in Iowa, one in Kansas, and we're just about to open one in Minnesota in the next six months. And these are prisons that I, you really would, if, if you went there, I, believe me, you won't believe this now, but it's true, if you went there, you wouldn't want to leave. <laughs> I don't. I mean, these guys are up in the morning at 5.30 studying the Bible, they're singing hymns, 200 guys in this prison in Texas. It's the most wonderful atmosphere. You sit in the mess hall and, and start talking with these guys and listening to their testimonies, and, and it's all day long. They go through classes, they do some work, and then at night they go to Bible study until 10 o'clock at night, no TV, no fooling around, and the test of whether it works or not is the fact that after five years, while the recidivism rate in the state of Texas is 66%, and that's the national figure as well, we have had men come out of that prison, go to work. We have had a 10% recidivism rate. <laughs> Iowa, we've had 56 inmates get out of prison and not one single one go back. This is God. This is God at work. Now, people come from all over the world to see that prison in Texas because every time George Bush gives a speech about faith-based ministry, he talks about that prison. I was just with him in the White House this fall, and he tells the story about when he visited that prison, the things he saw, the inmates he met, his arms around a murderer, and he laughed about it. He said, he said uh, that he was afraid of the bad publicity that would come from the picture of him singing Amazing Grace with his arms around convicted murderer by the name of George Mason. That convicted murderer is now out of prison discipling other men working in a church. 
Oh, what a joy to see that happen. And people are coming to see that and they can't argue with it. They might argue with Christianity. They might think we're hypocrites in church. You hear that all the time. I always tell people when they say that, come on, come on right in, you'll feel right at home. But the, <laughs> but the fact of the matter is they can't. The unassailable truth of the gospel is to see lives transformed and a culture created inside those prisons. And I have, I've been there when the mother of a woman who was murdered met the man who murdered her, her daughter. Mrs. Washington, African-American woman. And she had heard about his repentance. And they joined in an embrace as we were handing out certificates before 200 inmates. And Mrs. Washington in turn said, I lost my daughter, my husband died, I have no children left, but this man now is my son, adopted son. She stood up for him at his wedding. She continues to visit with him every week outside of prison. That's what God will do when we give God the chance. And the world needs to see that so desperately. And they do see it. We're working now with kids in the inner cities. 600,000 kids through Angel Tree last year. What an incredible opportunity to get to those kids who have no mommy or dad, have mommy or daddy in prison, no possible chance of a Christmas, and we go to their house and share the gospel with them. And now, last year, we sent 5,000 of those kids to camp and we're now working with mentoring them on a year-round basis. You stop crime in this country when you get to those kids because 85% of the kids who get arrested for a juvenile offense report having a sibling or a parent in prison. We can get to them with the gospel and change that. And let me tell you, the world will see something happen when Christians do that. The world will see this culture transform. I have a vision for the church because I saw it in a prison just less than two years ago. We started something called Operation Starting Line, which is working with Moody Bible Institute, which does correspondence courses for these inmates, working with Campus Crusade, with Navigators, with Promise Keepers, with all the Christian organizations, Billy Graham Association, bringing these blitzes on in the prisons. It is absolutely magnificent. And then all the follow-up that goes on with the inmates who come to Christ. We kicked it off Easter of the year 2000 in Georgetown, Delaware. It was a marvelous day. It was cold. A cold wind had blown through. A front had moved through. But 600 inmates came out into the prison yard. They were all wearing white cotton jumpers, freezing. And there were three different prisons all combined at this one institution, this one field, with a chain-link fence so that the minimum security, the maximum se- the minimum security, which is the boot camp, the maximum security and the medium security could each funnel out of their own institutions and come down to this chain link fence. And we were in the middle, encircled by the fence, although with gates through so that I could go in and shake hands with the inmates. And then we had a large platform built, and there's where the program, Charlie Daniels and many of the musicians, and it was a wonderful day. Gray sky and cold, but a wonderful day, with 600 inmates huddled up against the fence and huddled in with each other. Franklin Graham gave the salvation message that day and gave a wonderful message. I gave my testimony. We invited men to come to Christ. Hands went up all through the crowd, and we're passing out papers for them to fill out and cards for them to fill out. Bruce Wilkinson was there. Bruce Wilkinson had walked through the Bible, had never been in prison before. 
I thought, I'm going to do something nice. I'm going to let Bruce take part in the program. So I said, Bruce, would you like to get up and close in prayer and do something with these inmates and say something to them? Well, Bruce had never been in prison before, so didn't know the things he wasn't supposed to do. (laughs) He walked up and took command. He said, I want all of you inmates leaning up against the fence to walk back ten steps. I held my breath. You you don't do that with inmates. Tell them what to do. The guards all looked startled. Nobody moved. And Bruce said, you heard me. Back up. Everybody back up. Back up away from the fence. And slowly they started to edge backwards, looking around at each other to see they didn't want to be pushed around. They all looked suspicious. Finally, he got the whole crowd of 600 inmates back about 10 feet from the fence. He said, now I want all of you Christians, those of you who gave your lives to Christ today, to step forward. Often we don't do that in prison because there's enormous peer pressures and enormous persecution. And he's asking the guys to come forward. I was holding my breath, praying quietly, keeping my head down, scared that there was going to be a riot. 200 guys stepped forward. One or two at first, one or two more, one or two, and then they all started to come forward. 200 inmates walked. He said, come up to the fence. They walked up to the fence, and he said, now what I want you to do, you're the church. He said, you are the ones who are the shepherds of the people of God. You're the ones responsible for what happens in this place, and you're going to evangelize the other men who did not step forward. Turn around and face them. Never seen anything like it in a prison. Those men did an about-face. They turned around, 200 of them, and looked right in the eyes of 400 men who were standing back looking suspicious and angry and tattoos all over and bulging muscles and hairy arms. I mean, this is tough stuff. This isn't child's play. This isn't your summer camp. These are real hard dudes. And those 200 men stared at them. And then Bruce said, get on your knees because I'm going to pray for you. And now I could barely hold back the emotion. I I found tears flowing down my cheek because I looked at 200 men with white shirts on, putting their lives on the line, getting down on their knees, and everyone put his hands on the shoulder of the man next to him. 200 men joined as one on their knees as Bruce prayed. And Bruce prayed that they might have the courage to go back into that prison and evangelize those men left behind. And what I saw that day was a vision of the church on its knees, humble, ready to serve others, courageous, prepared to look square in the face of other inmates and say, I'm willing to kneel here for Jesus Christ, humiliate myself in front of you, doesn't matter. I've got the guts to do it. United as one. How I long for the day when the church is one where people have their hands on one another's shoulders and we're supporting one another and we love one another in Christ, all true Christians being able to do that. And I saw those men doing that. 
and then boldly ready to walk into that prison and evangelize those men left behind. That's the picture, that's the metaphor for the church of Jesus Christ today. Joined together because we're one, because we were purchased by Christ for one, by his blood. And we stand together and we have the courage to face this culture and we have the boldness to go in and evangelize and we do it on our knees. Humble, oh God, make us the kind of people who are prepared to take our stand and to kneel before this culture, ready to serve with the courage to defend you against everything and with the boldness to assert ourselves for your glory. Give us that kind of courage and ability. Make us the kind of people we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. You've been listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast and one of four messages Chuck Colson presented at MBI Founders Week between 1981 and 2003. Chuck Colson was a Christian leader who founded Prison Fellowship and Breakpoint after serving as special counsel to President Richard Nixon from 1969 to 1973. Audio copies of this and many other messages from the podcast are available at moodyaudio.com. Today in the Word Radio is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of the Moody Bible Institute.